someone would come in and like new to bourbon and say, I want a really good $100 bourbon. There was no such thing as a $100 bourbon, right? <laughs> that, that did not exist. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Now, I've witnessed firsthand the progression of bourbon over the past six years since this podcast began. It went from learning about new releases and hunting for them with relative ease, then going to 72-hour campouts for bottles that would probably just sit on the shelves. However, my time in bourbon doesn't even compare to that of our guests. Steve Urey, better known as Skew, is one of the original bloggers in bourbon, before there was a such a thing as YouTubers and even podcasters in bourbon. However, since then, he's backed off of blogging, but he still stays up to date with everything that's happening in the bourbon world, and he takes notice of how brands are constantly changing and evolving. He's cynical of brands, as well as cynical at the changing consumer, but that doesn't stop him from talking about every single TTB label approval. Steve also hasn't found a new home in the world of brandy, and we discuss how long it takes before Instagrammers and podcasters ruin that as well. Cheers, everybody. Enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Uh, this week's idea comes from Adam, or at the Adam Terry on Twitter, who writes... Which currently operating distillery has made the greatest impact on the bourbon industry? That is a great question, Adam. And there are two that I will talk about. Jack Daniels is, is one. So Jack Daniels is the most important whiskey in America. So it's the most important whiskey that's made in the United States because they have so much demand in places like Poland, Australia, uh, United Kingdom, all over the world, Jack Daniels is known. You can thank Frank Sinatra for that. You can thank Guns N' Roses. You can think about the kind of Americana presence that Jack Daniels has uh, basically been since, you know, Brown Foreman, you know, took that brand over. And wherever they go, they open doors for American whiskey. And so while we can have the fun conversation of, is it bourbon, which it is, you have to acknowledge the greatness and the power that Jack Daniels has had. Uh, the other one was uh, Maker's Mark. So Maker's Mark was the only brand that was kind of pushing the envelope in the 60s, 70s. Not the 60s. Everybody was pushing the envelope in the 60s. But in the 1970s and 80s, when bourbon was essentially left for dead, Maker's Mark was this little brand that was going and going and going. And it kept it, it it revitalized uh, people's passion and they created like branding around it with that red dripping wax. And uh, it, it was so impactful what uh, Maker's Mark did. And when Bill Samuels went into new markets, uh, he didn't, he didn't just sell his product. He was talking about wild Turkey. He was talking about uh, new brands that were coming on the street, like Booker's, you know? So you had this uh, iconic man going around the country selling his brand, Maker's Mark, but also bringing his friends to the tasting table. Now, if you happen to cross him, you know, from a trademark perspective, they'd sue the living shit out of you. But as long as that didn't happen, Maker's Mark was definitely on your side as a bourbon brand. Now, that's those are two that I think that really deserve... Um, deserve a lot of credit 
for their impact on uh, bourbon. And I would say, you know, another one, and this is going to catch a lot of people by surprise, but um, uh, Tuttletown in New York, Hudson Baby Bourbon, it was a craft distillery coming out in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. And it was showing people that bourbon could be made in New York. And they got money behind from them from uh, William Grant. And they kind of started changing the conversation that bourbon had to be made in Kentucky. And so while the, the product has is not going to uh, beat most Kentucky bourbons in a blind tasting, they got people talking about bourbon outside of Kentucky. And I can't stress how important that is. You know, 10 years ago when I would do a private tasting, the first question that people would ask is like, wait, I thought bourbon had to be made in Kentucky. And uh, now I don't, I rarely even get that anymore because there's, there's been so much education out there uh, for folks that most people on the streets, well, I'm assuming, know that bourbon doesn't have to be made in Kentucky anymore because of brands like Tuttletown producing uh, whiskey all over the country. But hey, that's going to do it for this week's uh, Above the Char. Uh, if you want to be like uh, Adam, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just write me on redminic.com. Click that contact button. Let me know your idea. Till next week. Cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. 
Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today talking with a fun guest, and this kind of goes into like the OG circle, if you will. People that have been around bourbon for a long, long time and has seen the the rapid change, or should I say the rapid growth, and then almost maybe like the demise of really what bourbon was about it at some time. Yeah, well before us tater podcasters got into it and, <laughs> uh, you know, built the hype train and <laughs> doing all the chasing and all the stupid things we do as whiskey geeks. <laughs> Very true. It was actually funny before we were recording, uh, I was talking to our guest and, and he was like, yeah, like you all the problem, you know, coming in and doing all these podcasts. That's, that's what it is. It's, but I mean, it's, it's true. Like there is a, an overabundance and, and don't get me wrong. We love what we do. And there's a lot of room for, you know, more podcasts to come in, but there is an overabundance of YouTube channels and bloggers and Instagram people and, this want to create content and or maybe get free samples. I don't really know what it comes down to, but we'll uh, we'll, we'll see what our guest thinks about all that too when we get into yeah, this. Yeah, he's going to, hopefully it's not a huge hazing opportunity for him to, <laughs> to hate on us, So, but I'm ready for it. Very true. So today on the show, we have Steve Yuri. Steve ran a blog called Scoo's Recent Eats. He also has the Twitter handle of Scoo's Recent Eats. And he has been around in bourbon for a long time, and we'll kind of get a little bit more of that background. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, absolutely. So, uh, I guess we'll, we'll start at the very beginning, kind of like your bourbon journey. We all have these these tales of, oh, I had my first sip of Makers at this age, and then I was in college, or blah, blah, blah. How did you navigate yourself into the world of, of bourbon and brown spirits? Well, you know, I started as a, a Scotch guy in the mid mid to late 90s i'd say i was drinking mostly single malt then you know in urban was you know just starting to, i'd say to sort of interest was just starting to percolate then and so i started drinking it probably in the early 2000s in a serious more serious way and got really into that to it then you know in the early mid 2000s as just something that was interesting and and that there was good stuff going on and new stuff coming out and started drinking it and really liking it bourbon rye American Whiskey Generally started my blog in 2007, and that ran for 10 years, almost exactly, on the blog. So that was my my story. And the blog still sur- survives today, um, but give kind of some people about if if they want to go back in the, uh, I guess you'd say the, 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 the DeLorean and go back in time to some of the articles you wrote, like what was what was some of the topics that you, you really were focused on? You know, I, I talked about whiskey generally. I was sort of a, you know, I was sort of a curmudgeon. I was, I was a skeptic of, of a lot of things that were going on. I was, I tried to be, you know, take it with a, you know, try to be humorous with it, tried to add some humor to the seriousness of what is after all, you know, a beverage made from corn. Um, and I never thought should be taken too, too seriously. Um, it's a mix of that and cynicism, you know, I did reviews like everyone does and, you know, there was a, there was an evolution of it too. You know, I started like almost every blogger does tasting basic stuff and like just giving an opinion. And I I think I was lucky to be there during a time when the market really exploded that period from 2007 to 2017, you know, it was a huge shift in the market. So I sort of chronicled that. You got to remember when I got into bourbon, it was just a, such a different world. First of all, no one gave a shit about bourbon, right? No one right. cared. Like, yeah, no I say that all. all the time. Yeah, like, I mean, single malt, maybe people were just starting to drink, but it was a non-whiskey world and certainly a non-bourbon world. And there just wasn't that much of it out there. I mean, you know, there, there was the 
beam what they called the small batch collection then, right? Which was Knob Creek, Bakers, Bookers, and Basil Hayden. Um, makers made one thing, right? They made one thing. Makers Mark, 45%. That was it. That was the only thing they made. Four Roses wasn't for sale in the U.S. Uh, Buffalo Trace, even when it, I remember when it first came out, the actual, the Buffalo Trace label bourbon, it was only in like Kentucky and Tennessee. I remember ha- asking a friend of mine in Tennessee to, you know, get me some on a, on a trip there. And, you know, MGP wasn't a thing. It was, at that time, it was called LDI, Lawrenceburg Distillers, Indiana. But all of it was going into Seagram 7, for that matter. The very first stuff came out that came out using LDI whiskey was was High West and Templeton around, I want to say 2006, maybe later. And no one knew what it was. You know, people had no idea that there was, even like Chuck Cowdery, right, who was the grand, old, knowledgeable guy of bourbon, I remember when High West first came out, and it came out labeled as a, a blend of straight rise, um, which means rye, straight rye is coming from more than one state. And I remember Calgary saying, well, this is probably a mistake because there's no rye outside of Kentucky. Because <laughs> the, the idea of Indiana rye, just no one even knew about it because it just wasn't a thing that was on people's radar at all, even, even someone like him. So, and I mean, imagine that, like, it's hard to imagine today a world without MGP, right? Like that's half the brands these days. So it was a different world. I mean, you know, the, the plus side and the, the thing I miss the most about it is that it was just a thing where people talked about it and then went out and tried it, right? Like you heard about a good bourbon, you went out and you bought it and you drank it and saw what you found. I remember one of the first real quality bourbons I bought was I, when I was really getting into it past the sort of Knob Creek stage and stuff that, you know, everyone knew about was someone said, Oh, you got to try this new wild Turkey. It's called Russell's reserve. And that was the 10 year one one proof, right? It was, it was before Russell's reserve was its own brand, right? It was wild Turkey, Russell's reserve. And so I said, Oh, that sounds cool. So what did I do? I went down to the liquor store. I plonked down like 35 bucks and I came home with a bottle and drank it. And that's what we did. Like there was no idea that this stuff was like, rare or would be a shortage or hard to find. Like you talk to people, the community was you talk about the bourbon, you go and taste the bourbon and then, you know, you see if you like it or not. And if you like it, you can buy more. If you don't, you don't. That was true of Van Winkle, right? It was everywhere. There was no, you know, I it, up to the 2010s, I think, Pappy, the early 2010s, Pappy Van Winkle was not hard to find. Like it was pretty easy to walk in anywhere and see it anywhere, Hirsch, all that stuff, you know, but for me, the, the best part of it was was the community it created, right? Because, and I think that's partly what's changed the most, right? The community was based on people hanging out and drinking bourbon and having fun. And there was no idea that like you were going to make money from it or, you know, that you were going to have trouble. You might have trouble finding it just because it's, you know, like I said, if you want Buffalo Trace, you have to be in Tennessee. Like, But there was no idea that like somehow it was so rare or, and it was really affordable, right? That was the other great thing, like, especially coming from Scotch. Like someone would come in and like new to bourbon and say, I want a really good $100 bourbon. There was no such thing as a $100 bourbon, right? <laughs> that, that did not exist. Like you want a good $50 bourbon? We can find that maybe. Like bourbon was $30, $40. So that, that's sort of the world as it was. I don't want to be overly nostalgic. Like some things were worse then, some things are better now. But that was sort of the joy I found in that, in that early bourbon world. Well, we'll break that down a little bit. It's it's funny you say that. I we had a a member with us on a barrel pick, and he was talking about how he used to go to tailgates, and what they would do is they would go to the liquor store, get a twenty five thirty dollar bottle of Old Rip Van Winkle ten year, and that's what they would drink, and they would drink the full bottle at a tailgate, and they would just do that all the time, uh, just 
amazing that that stuff was just you know littered everywhere yeah whereas now you you, you watch a review and you're like i'd love to try that but uh not gonna happen <laughs> can't find it <laughs> yeah and frankly that's one of the reasons i stopped blogging and doing reviews because what's the point of reviewing you know it's like the tree falling in the forest right like what's what's the value of reviewing a bourbon that no one's ever going to be able to taste or find it just didn't it, it sort of the joy went away of, of that for me yeah so you, you said you were starting to write you know more or you're kind of doing cynicism or the negative side what what was it that you're talking about the nostalgia how great was it when did it turn for you where you're like start getting cynical and what was making you cynical I think there were a couple of things. I think the the whole flipping culture that developed around it, right? And that was really, I think that was really after Van Winkle took off. Um, this idea that people would buy and and you know they'd be buying the bourbon not to drink it, but to like make a future profit. I feel like just once that element gets introduced into something, no matter what it is, really, right? It just changes the culture, and that really led to a culture of not, hey, this is really good, try this, but oh my God, this is like, you know, going to make me a lot of money. So I want to get as much of it as possible and make it. And that just, you know, that changed the culture in a way that I thought was really negative. It started, you know, there was always an element of that, like an early eBay before they shut it down, people would sell on eBay. eBay got rid of it. And then when Facebook groups came out, you know, it sprang up on Facebook, which is, you know, obviously sort of the biggest, it seems to be the biggest place that it happens now. But it also, you know, the fact is it just became popular, right? And that's good and bad. It was good because more stuff kept coming out, right? Like I said, there used to be just one makers and there used to be, you know, really limited selection. And so the selection grew and the, and the types of, you know, you saw more cast strength and more single barrel, more interesting stuff. Um, but at the same time, the, the demand became so great that age statements started dropping and proof started dropping in, in some places, right? And there was just not enough bourbon to go around. So I, I don't think that's a, you know, that's not necessarily anyone's fault. That was just, that's just what happens when, when something becomes popular. But in terms of the cynicism, I mean, you know, the, I've, there also was this, you know, then you had this sort of, when the MGP stuff really started coming out and this sort of very sketchy brands that, you know, this whole idea that they would pretend that they were making craft bourbon and they were just rebottling MGP. That's a problem that's gotten better. I mean, I see distilled in Indiana more on labels than back now. Back then, they would just leave it off, right? There would be no mention of Indiana on a label, you know, in violation of the regulations, which have never been enforced all that well. And that blew up around 2014 when first the Daily Beast did a big article based a lot on the... I used to keep a list, right, of all the brands I knew that were MGP or elsewhere, all the bottled brands as best I could. Um, and they called me and this guy who wrote the article is really interested that so many brands are were at that time, at that time, LDI, maybe it was MGP by then, I don't remember, but so published a big article about it. Then there were all these lawsuits. And so eventually I think people are a little more honest about it now, which is good, but that was definitely, in terms of things to be cynical about, that was one of the biggest things, like companies claiming to be something they weren't, right? Saying like, you know, we're using our great grandfather's recipe that we found and, you know, his coffin when we dug him up to see if, you know, what, what his bourbon would have been like. And now we're making it and it just happens to be 95% rye. And, you know, <laughs> how weird. How, yeah. How, how coincidental, fortuitous. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of shady stuff going on at that time. I, I do think that's gotten better. Like there's certainly still some shadiness, but in terms of when I, cause I do go through all these labels, like at least it'll be in small type on the back, but at least it's there. Like they'll say distilled in Indiana. Right. Or, imported from Canada or, you know, any of the other sort of shady things that 
addressing all the shady things that were going on. <laughs> even, you know, even Bullet back then, which is obviously a big brand owned by a big company, was pretty cagey about it. And I think their labels were wrong for a long time and said like distilled at the Bullet Distillery, right? Which doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of, there were, you know, it's whiskey, right? It has a history of shady practices, right? It's, it's the whole reason yeah. we have like food and drug regulations to begin with, right? Is because of whiskey. So it's all about if the, if, if the story sells. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was funny last night I was at my neighbor's and he had a bottle barrel pick he got from, uh, from total wine. And, uh, you know, I was looking at, I never heard of before. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't have a age or I was like, well, how old is he? He's like, I don't know. You know? They just told me about it. And I was like, well, you know, if it's less than, or if it's four years, you got to state your age. If it's less than that, they'll tuck it somewhere on the back of the label. And sure enough, on the back of the label, it said, in eight, Oak, no more, no more than two years. And he was like, well, shit, I didn't know that. And he's like, now I know I can look at the label and, and see, uh, you know, the consumers just don't understand. They just see it on the shelf, like, oh, that's a cool bottle. And, uh, you know, here we go. Yeah. And, you know, Steve, I got a good question for you too, is, is the idea of now, now you, you do see MGP everywhere and there's brands popping up left and right every single day. What's your thought of just everybody kind of taking, and I don't want to say there's taking the easy way out of just buying MGP and bottling it and reselling it, but it does seem that there's just an overabundance of the same stuff that's out there and just a different label and a different package. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's always been an issue, right? I mean, look, before MGP was Heaven Hill, right? They sold tons, and Barton, right? They sold tons of whiskey, you know, to other labels. And there's nothing inherently wrong with it. Some of my favorite whiskeys are, right, are sourced, you know, those old Willets or, you know, other places that have bought whiskey and done really good things with them. I think the problem is less the sourcing than the demand is so high that they can sell anything, right? So it's like two years, sure, three years, sure. Like, you know, it seems like anyone will buy anything and slap a, fancy label on it or, or satirical label, and then it'll be out there. And it's, uh, you know, it doesn't do a lot for the quality, I think, of the reputation of, of the product to have all that stuff out there. But, you know, the truth is there's just more demand. So like how much, you know, you're only going to find so much six-year, eight-year, 10-year bourbon these days, right? For sure. And at what point did you kind of see the the change happen at a lot of distilleries where, Everything was an opportunity uh, to create a limited edition release of something because it's true. I mean, every week we all get the press releases of saying, oh, this distiller is now releasing their whatever 13 year or something like 13 years was just used to be it just it was sat on the shelf. There was a 13 year expression of something. But now the fact that it's 13 year, we've, we've got to go. We've got to clamor for it. We've got to go hunt for it. We've got to do whatever. And it's been seasoned or it's been like doubled or finished or this or that it's like okay it's been in a, a, <laughs> right. a tilting warehouse i don't know like whatever it is kind of when did you see that that shift really start changing it's funny because you know in the beginning we really wanted more stuff right we wanted more you know we wanted more dickel for instance right they were only making like a couple expressions and you know now you can't turn your head without like seeing a tripping over someone's bottled dickel but we really want and like more makers and things like that but but there's a cynicism to it. I mean, I feel like the the point of the, the greatest market cynicism was the Orphan Barrel series, right? When like Diageo first came out with that. And like it was just like like we found really, really old whiskey that was just sitting around. <laughs> it's not necessarily any good, but it's old. And so we're gonna do this special limited edition and put a label on it, and people will buy it just because of the label and the age statement, regardless of the fact that it's really, you know, 
I mean, some of it was fine, but it's got a dancing fox on it. Like, say no to dancing fox. You know, I don't know anyone who thought it was anything special, and some of them were just way over the hill. But you know, they and we, you know, it was a it was a joke when it came out, right? People thought it was ridiculous, but you know, now I feel like it's one of these things that people are like, "Oh my gosh, the Orphan Barrel series!" You know, like, let's pay, you know. $400 $400 for it or, or whatever. I, you know, I think that's sort of at that point, it was sort of in the probably in the mid 2010s when that really started, you know, it started being like that. Let's, you know, they old what they used to say about, I guess, comic books and stuff like everything's a number one because then, well, right. Every issue is number one because then people will buy it and, and uh, it'll it'll sell out. Just got to get on the chart somehow. <laughs> that yeah. story always cracks me up. We just found these twenty-four-year-old barrels, and you know, eighteen. You're like, you didn't just find those damn things, you know. And also, that was a period too when everything was like. I think they used the Stitzel Weller name, right? Like everyone was using the Stitzel Weller name. Like, you know, I joked once that like they were going to start, you know, saying that this was from Kentucky, which is where the Stitzel Weller Distillery is, right? For any random brand that was from Kentucky, like it was so, like that they tied it to any chance to use the name Stitzel Weller on a product, whether it was in the, near the warehouse or in a barrel that had once held Stitzel Weller, it was, it was, you know, fairly ridiculous. Anything you can tie to Pappy, you know. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Even, These days even makers are like, we got the same use strain or, right. you know, from the Stitzel Weller. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? exactly. And speaking of Stitzel Weller and stuff like that, you know, when you started into your bourbon journey, it took us a little while to get into the dusties and the vintage and all that sort of stuff. Was that a big thing when you were starting to actually go and troll liquor stores and, you know, find bottles of, you know, VVOF or anything like that? I, yes, it was a huge thing. I was I was behind it. I mean, getting VVOF at a liquor store like that had already been cleaned out by the time I got there. I mean, that, that was the, there was guys in the 90s, right, who were going from place to place cleaning that out. But tons of, you know, national distillers stuff was on the shelf still when I, I mean, I remember just going, there's another, you know, when I first heard about Dusty's, I just went to a corner store like two blocks from me and they had, you know, national distillers Overholt and Crow. And now granted, this was like, you know, 2006 or something or 2009. So it's a lot closer in time to when that stuff was on the market. But yeah, there was tons of that stuff still on the, um, on the shelves and you could find all kinds of weird you know, weird stuff. I never found, I found a lot of good old Forester from the seventies, which is, is fantastic, but I never found like a lot of, um, Stitzel Weller stuff. Like there are folks who found that stuff, which is amazing, but, um, they beat you I, to the punch on that one. Yeah. yeah, no, that stuff had been cleaned out already by the time I was around, but you know, the, the, um, that's also a, like time. It, it was still a pretty obscure thing. And I do remember the time when I felt like, Oh, when I knew like, okay, this thing is over was around, I, I don't remember exactly when, but at some point after doing this for years, you know, it just got into the habit, right? You pass a liquor store, you stop like a dingy looking liquor store, like with a big lottery sign or something or deli liquor, <laughs> you stop and you go and you see what they have. And like, you know, three times out of 10, you might find something. But at some point I did that and I came in and I look around, the guy looks at me and says, you looking for the old bottles? And I was like, All right. <laughs> This ship is like, that's the end of this. Like, Somebody else has got it. Yeah, <laughs> there's to. too many people doing this now. And and sure enough, like, I don't think I ever found anything, you know, but I would just, I mean, I lived in LA at the time. I would just drive around LA, take a, a weekend day and drive around and hit, you know, six or seven old places and find, you know, find all the old early times bourbon was everywhere. Like you definitely could find stuff back then. It was, you know, it's just part of the fun, right? Like it was all in the original prices, right? Because no one knew what they had. So you're paying like, 
$8 or something <laughs> for this great dusty old glut bourbon, you know, that, that was just delicious and fun to, fun to drink and share. And now it's $600. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that was, that was my big like prohibitor of actually getting into it was when you, and the only wrong, like I started around like 2013 timeframe, but you would go on some of the Facebook forums and people were selling, you know, these, like, it's just like an old granddad, you know, national distillers. And it was like a hundred, $125. And I was like, and it still had like the price tag. It said like eight ninety nine on it. I'm like, who in the yeah. world would pay for it? that's That's ridiculous. And now like, you know, fast forward five or six years, I'm like, gosh, uh, I wish I could bring those $125 prices back down. Yeah. So kind of talk about your thoughts on the prices of, of vintage whiskey. Do you think it's 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 validated of, of what you see on the market today? Or do you think it's a little bit chaotic? Because I mean, as, as Ryan said, that, that $150 price point is probably now like $600. Yeah. I, I don't follow the secondary market prices at all anymore. I just, I mean, at some point they just became farcical to me. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's, there's no relation to the, to the product, right? Like, I mean, National Distillers Old Crow is tasty, but it's just bourbon. It's, it's, you know, it's good bourbon, but it's not any necessarily better or worse than anything you'll find today. Like even the best bourbons, I just, and you know, that's another thing that made me cynical is when, you know, you started getting these releases. I remember, I mean, the Booker's Rye was sort of the last straw for me when it first came out. I think it came out at like, I don't remember what the price point was. 300. Yeah, 300 for, for that. Or the, um you know, the original Kentucky Owls too, right? Like putting this really high prices on it. Like that's just never been what I enjoyed about bourbon, right? Was it, it almost as if it became more of like a luxury drink. Like, you know, I didn't want to write a blog about caviar or Ferraris or something like that. Like, <laughs> You know, and and that sort of felt like sort of the direction it was going in, and so that's that's one of the things that made me cynical. I don't mind, you know. There've always been things that cost money for quality items, and that's fine. And um, and I understand that, and I understand people are going to make money, and the producers certainly deserve to make money. But it just it just seemed to there were there's a fetishization going on of it, you know, of, of these brands, the old stuff, the new stuff, all of it that just to me is not why I got involved, right? I got into it because it was fun to drink and hang out with friends and taste the differences and taste the different stuff and see what it was like. And the culture of that just, for me, changed. And so, and that, that's not to say you can't do that today, right? There's lots of bourbon out there and there's certainly, surely lots of affordable bourbon out there. So it's not, I'm not trying to say that like the whole thing's ruined or something, but there's certainly an element of it that's not as fun anymore. And, you know, again, I was lucky, like, really good stuff was really easy to find for and really affordable. I got in. So I certainly, you know, the old folks like us who've been in it for a while got spoiled by that. I, I think that's still going on. Like, you know, I think more of it's turned to like single barrel picks instead of So we'll, you'll get with friends and groups and say like, you know, try my single barrel pick, try your single barrel, pick, you know, and it's kind of turned to that more than the limited releases. You know, you might have some here and there, but uh, it's still... That's still part of it, but there's still the annoying, obnoxious, you know, limited release stuff. And uh, yeah, that's uh, annoying as well. And, fr- and frankly, and you guys joked about the, I joked about the podcast, but you know, I don't think that's a problem either. I love the fact that there's information out there and there's lots of people trying it and drinking. Like there was, again, like, you know, no one, when I started this, no one gave a shit and there was no information. Like it was really hard to find, like there was Chuck Cowdery's book, right? That was it. Like, and there was maybe another book, maybe a few blogs. There was Straight Bourbon Forum, right? Straightbourbon.com was basically the place where you went to talk about bourbon. 
but there was very little else out there. So the fact that you've got lots of people who are interested now who are drinking, like, I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think that can only be, you know, good people. Not that I, you know, I'm not going to love all of them. Like no one is, but I sort I do sort of feel like the more people out there drinking it, the, the better, like, I don't like to be snobbish about it and say, well, you know, I was better than some, you know, Instagram okay. reviewer just because I'm old or whatever, you know, or, or I know more or because I know the regulations or something like that. Right. Like that, who cares? So I, you know, I think that's one of the, actually the good things that there is a lot of interest in bourbon, like right now. And like, that just wasn't true back then. There's a lot of interest. There's also a lot of Blanton's chasers out there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I think that's one of the things that gripes me just a little bit is I don't know what the aura is around it, why people feel the need to go and chase it or anything like that. And that kind of makes it this everyday item that becomes completely unobtainable by, by anybody now. You got to finish your shot ski, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all those, those the collect spell, the tops. Bl- spell out blends. And that's the demand trend, right? Like with the Pappy thing, right? It started with just the like 15 and the 20 and the 23, right? And those were the ones everyone wanted. And no one really cared about old Rip Van Winkle 10. And then it went to that, right? And then went to Weller 12. And then it went to Weller Antique. And then Weller Special Reserve, which was like just a sort of a maker's competitor at the time, right? Like a less successful maker's is what Weller Special Reserve was, right, on the market. And that then, because of the name, like that became a thing. So it, it did just sort of, you know, it sort of, the demand was so great that the level of things that were in demand just went, you know, kept going down a rung each time. So when you look at this, we see the like the influx of people coming into it. We see more podcasts, more YouTube channels, more Instagrammers, more bloggers. And then you also see the brands also coming out with more and more types of labels or opportunities for limited releases. Like when you look at this and, and the ever-changing shift, do you blame the people more or do you blame the brands? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's point of sale Go Mobile device for a battle tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription.
when you look at this and, and the ever-changing shift, do you blame the people more? Or do you blame the brands? Or is it just, or is everybody responsible? I, I, mean, I, I don't like to use the word blame because I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to come and be like, oh, everything was good. And then you damn kids ruined everything. <laughs> just like you ruined everything else in the world, right? Like, it's just a different, it's just a you damn millennials. World. Yeah. Damn millennials. <laughs> It's just a different world in a different context. Like, I think all those things take came together. I mean, look, it's a good product and it got popular for a reason. And it's a product that takes more time to make than can address the popularity, right? Like it takes, you know, at least six years to make a really, you know, a decent tasting bourbon. That's probably controversial, but I would say that. Like, I don't drink a lot of bourbon less than six years old. And like, you know, that that takes time. And then, you know, everyone start has expanded their production, but it, that took time to catch up. And so... I don't know that it's anyone's fault. It's just where the market has gone. I will say, you know, there are, there are other things. Again, I don't want to be overly negative. Like craft whiskey, right, is something that's really improved. I mean, I really made my my the, my, the, my blog <laughs> made its name by a, a column I did in one of my early columns where I said most craft whiskey sucks. Right, that was the <laughs> title of the of the post because craft whiskey was really young then. It was getting a lot of publicity, and I I kept tasting it and wanting to like it, and like it was just terrible. Right, uh, not much has changed. Year. <laughs> no, there's there's definitely a few good ones for I'd sure. say there's a lot of terrible stuff till, but there, but there is it's definitely improved. Like the yeah. the the stuff that used to be really undrinkable. And now, you know, you think about stuff like this new Leopold's three chamber rye or the newer companies, um, the sort of mid-level, right? Like the Willets and the new riff. I mean, that's a real improvement that to have more producers at that level coming in. And again, like I said, I mean, Four Roses wasn't even available in the US when I started. And now, you know, they have all kinds of stuff. And and they've been, I think, very good about not over proliferating their brands, but still producing really high quality stuff. Brands like High West, you know, I think are, are great and have put out really good product and, and put really good care of it. I, I don't, I haven't had some of this stuff in the last four or five years, so I may be a little dated on it. But um, in fact, I haven't drank that much High West since they sold it, sold it just because not purposefully, but just because I haven't. But, th- but there is a lot of good stuff that's come out of the popularity is all I'm I'm saying by that. Well, that's a great answer. I mean, it's it's funny when we were talking about like who do you blame? I there's Blake always gets quoted as um, you know, people saying that or people to send him messages and say, because he used to have the Pappy map on on Bourboner, and they said, you know, all these hipsters with their flannel shirts came and ruined bourbon. And he's like, I guarantee you they're not hipsters in flannel shirts that ruined bourbon. So <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you you're not too far off from bourbon still. You still troll the TTB daily what's uh what's your your magnetization to it like why do you get succumbed with everything and new labels that that appear there oh i i do that just because it's just so much fun i mean it's just fun to see what what they're i just got used to it i think you know i did it for so long i don't just do bourbon either right i do i look at the labels for pretty much all the brown spirits i look at scotch and rum and, and brandy and I just like to see it's it, the TTB labels are a good way to see where trends are going and what's what's happening like you know there was a time you know, right after Fireball came out, right, where suddenly like everything was flavored, right? Like every, or really starting with Red Stag, right? First you saw all this, you know, cherry and then all this cinnamon and then all this everything, birthday cake, chocolate, you know, it's just a way to sort of see what what direction things are going in. And so um, it's interesting. It's definitely, I'd say it's definitely calmed down a little. I mean, for a while, like there were just so many brands and so many new labels. I mean, it was just tons of them every day. And I'd say that's ebbed a little, it probably peaked a few years ago. Um, and now it's a little lower. There's still tons of MGP stuff. Like the amount of MGP labels I see or distilled in Indiana labels is just mind-boggling. Like yeah. I'm just shocked how much of 
they put out and are able to sell, like how many labels come out that way. But it's just, you know, for me, it's just fun. I'm sort of a geek, right? I'm a lawyer and it's a, a legal piece too, right? Like reading their regulations and looking to see what they missed, you know, what the TTB might've missed on like some label that they approved that really shouldn't have been approved because it was screwed up. That's gotten a little bit better too. I mean, there was a time I remember when they approved like a label that claimed to be a bottled in bond, like root beer flavored <laughs> bourbon at 35% or so. They're used to the quality control is definitely ratcheted up. It seems like it. TTB things still slip through, but uh, it's, it's definitely gotten better. Well, we got you and Wade to always help make sure that people get called out on those things as well. Yeah, Wade's a tad more aggressive than I am. I think. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd is, say so. Is he your protege, Wade, or vice versa? Well, we, we, uh, <laughs> we, we, we came up together. I was more that I would point this stuff out online. This is a mistake. And Wade would like write angry emails to the distillery and the DTB, <laughs> right? I would post something saying, here are the problems with this label. And then I feel like the next day, Wade would be like, dear asshole, like you should have, you know, like, <laughs> why, why did you fix this label? Uh, it's a symbiotic relationship of, of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and then, so at some point you, you also kind of saw the, the change happen and you started making a, a way that you were consuming brown spirits as well. Kind of talk about your, your journey into brandy yeah. and how that's kind of taken a little bit more of your, your attention over, over bourbon and whiskey now. Yeah. So I started drinking brandy seriously around 20, 2012, 2013, which is when, I mean, brandy is like, to me, where bourbon was about 20 years ago. Like first, no one gives a shit about it, right? Like, or, and, and that's changing a little bit, but certainly when I started drinking in 2013, it was where bourbon had been in like the nineties. Like no one, even now with the exception of like a couple liquor stores, really like a handful in the whole country, you go to a liquor store that has like three, you know, aisles of bourbon. And you're lucky if they have like a half dozen brandies. And if any of them are not like the big cognac, like Cravassi and Hennessy and stuff like that, like it's just no one drinks it or knows about it or understands it. And that had been me too. And what happened in the early 2010s is that, um, and partly because there was no demand, we weren't getting any, right? Because unlike bourbon, like it has to be imported, right? Like you most of it, there's obviously American brandy, but the French brandies that are sort of the biggest names, like they have to be brought in. If no one's drinking it, no one's going to bring them in. So there were a few importers in the early 2010s that started saying, you know, we should take a chance on like small producer Armagnac. I really started with Armagnac, I'd say, some Calvado, some Cognac, and see if people will drink it. And so a lot of credit for it really goes to a few people. Uh, Nicholas Palazzi, who's the importer with PM Spirits, KNL Wine in California, and working with Charles Neal, who's a big brandy importer. Like they went to France, right, and started bringing stuff back and saying, we'll just put it on the shelf and see if it sells. And you know, I was curious just because I like spirits and I and I try them. And and so I tried what they brought back first was a lot of Armagnac. And so I tried it and I was just, you know, I was just blown away that this stuff is amazing. It's it's spicy like rye. I, I'd always thought of brandy as more of in the wine category, but really it's not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a spirit. So it tastes much more like whiskey than wine. Like it's much more similar to whiskey uh, than wine. And the stuff they were bringing was just amazing. It was from these little producers in Armagnac. And, and that's sort of almost redundant because Armagnac really is a small producer area. And it was just wonderful. You know, it was just, it was spicy. It was, it was dry. It wasn't, it also wasn't like, you know, most people in brandy are used to, you know, the big brandies in the U S like a lot of things are filled with sugar and coloring and wood pulp and all this other stuff and blended from like 
thousands and thousands of casks. And they're bringing in these like these small producers who grow their own grapes, who like, you know, just don't even have a still like they, some guy comes around with like a traveling still and distills it every few, <laughs> you know, every year at, after harvest. And then it sits in a barrel in their barn for, you know, until they're ready to sell it to someone. Sometimes like upwards of like 20, 30 years. I mean, yeah, I think, oh, yeah. I think that's the coolest thing about Armagnac and Brandy and Cognac right now is that you had mentioned it is, it is still at the very early stages. And I don't know how much longer you can go and get a 20 plus year age statement on a bottle of Armagnac or Cognac for, you know, $100, $200. Like that's, it's still considered pretty good value. Oh, the price to, I mean, the price quality ratio is insane. And Brandy, that's another thing that attracted me and made me feel like it was like bourbon and scotch were years ago because i mean it's a little different because it's an import there's not there's not that lower level right there's no great 30 dollar armiac or something like that right that just doesn't exist but once you get over the like you know 100 dollar mark 200 dollar mark which obviously like look that's a lot of money for a bottle of booze but what you're getting for it in brandy is so much more than whiskey i mean we for my i have a facebook group now serious brandy which people are welcome to join we did a bottling last year of an of two 1962 cognacs right they came out to about 250 dollars each now again that's that's a lot of money for a bottle of a booze but you know this is 57 58 year old cast strength brown spirit you know from cognac for 250 dollars if this was it, it, there's not really a bourbon equivalent because you don't have 1962 bourbon but and if it if, does it probably tastes horrible yeah but if it was scotch easily be $15,000 on the market, right? Like a 57-year-old scotch would easily be in the five figures, could could well be more than that, depending on the distillery. And the fact that you can get this for $250, and it's just amazing and beautiful spirit, to me is just a wonderful thing. Um, and it's, it's just something that, again, you don't find um, in the whiskey world anymore because of the popularity. Now, not everyone translates. Not everyone from whiskey is going to love brandy. Like some people... We're attracted to it because of those elements, but then we're like, I, you know, I just don't like the spirit that much. But personally, I think it's it's wonderful. It's different, but it's I think it's great. And we probably have about, you know, ten more years of that before it blows up. <laughs> that, that was going to be my next does. question. How long yeah. do you think before the podcasters and millennials ruin brandy for you? <laughs> I don't know if brandy will ever blow up, but I do think there's a limited amount of old stuff on the market, right? So it doesn't have to sure. it doesn't have to hit the bourbon level. But I'd say. You know, we, we're still finding amazing, like, 50, 60, I mean, even, honestly, even 100-year-old casks are out there. Not necessarily casks, they move stuff to glass at some point, but 100-year-old spirit is out there. And it's, you know, still comparatively to whiskey, really, really much more affordable and really, and really delicious. But I think over the next 10 years, like, that stuff will probably get drained. But again, the thing about brandy is it's not these big distilleries, right? It's these little farmhouses. And so the people refining it are like knocking on the door of these farmers who distill every now and then and finding this stuff. And so who knows where, you know, how much, no one really knows how much more of this stuff there is to be found in Kodiak and Armagnac. There was a big spike for for a little bit because everybody really jumped on the, and I hope I say it right, the Lane Cantata yeah. train and and getting those orange wax tops and, and kind of wiped out a little bit of their stocks uh, for a bit. Yeah, that's. I'll tell you the story of that because I actually brought in the first, helped bring in the first Long Cantata casks into the U.S. And what what happened is I had just done an Armagnac tasting um, for a bourbon group, and one of the guys in the group, this guy Paul Sherman, who lives in Switzerland, sent me this, um, sent me a bottle. Said, "Hey, there's this new bottler here, Long Cantata. This was about five years ago. They were new, 
And their, um, their stuff is really interesting. Let me send you a bottle. So he sent me a bottle and I tasted it. And Long Cantata, it was, it was Lou Pabu. Long Cantata is an independent bottler, right? So they're like, you know, they, they don't make anything. They go around and, and buy Armagnac and bottle it. Um, but they are in Armagnac. And the stuff I tried, Lou Pabu, was different from any Armagnac I'd ever had. And I learned later that the reason is because they, they make it differently. Um, most Armagnac, they put it in a new barrel to start with, and then they move it after a year or two to a used barrel. And they might move it to another used barrel a few years after that. So it ages, you know, progressively. They limit the wood influence by giving it sort of a burst of wood and then trailing it off a little to keep some of that, you know, subtlety of the spirit. And cognac does that as well. This stuff, they just stuck in a new, you know, new barrel and put in a cellar and left it there. And so it had a much more wood and oak intensive flavor. And it was very bourbony. And to me, and, you know, I'm probably at fault for some of this. I wrote a blog post about it when, it for, when I first tried this stuff. It wasn't available in the U.S. at all. It was really only French. And I said, you know, to me, I said, this tastes to me like old Burnham Willets, which is my, one of my favorite old Willets were these Willets that came, these weeded Willets that came from the Burnham Distillery, which, you know, is this distillery that is now Heaven Hill, but that was previously owned by what Diageo was then and that was used... Um, to make the bourbon for the Stitzelweller products after they closed Stitzelweller, right? So there's this period where they were Pappy and other Stitzelweller products, Old Fitzgerald, were using, after Stitzelweller closed, where they were using distillate from the bourbon distillery. And that stuff aged really well. And at some point, Willett came out with a bunch of it, 17 or 18-year-old, mostly distilled in the early 90s, right? Right after Stitzelweller closed, so like 93, 94. And it just, I loved it. I thought it was just as good as old Stitzelweller. It was one of some of my favorite old um, bourbons. But this Armagnac, to me, had that taste, that sort of subtle, slightly acidic, wood-tinged, heavily wooded-tinged taste. And to me, it was like the most bourbony Armagnac I've ever had, which are, are sort of words I probably regret at this point. So, <laughs> so, what, so what we did then is Paul and I and a, and a, got said, we got to get more of this. Like, we got to bring this to the US. This is amazing stuff. And so we got in touch with the company, did a tasting of a bunch. They sent us a bunch of samples. We tasted a bunch. We found three that we, from the same producer, Lou Pabu was the producer, um, that we really loved. And we brought it in. And we got, tried to get our bourbon friends interested in it. And of course, their first reaction was like, eh, I'm, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> like, um, and so we barely, you know, we were, we're on the cusp of not bringing in. K&L Wines helped us bring it in. They were the importer for it or the retailer for it. And, and you know, we were able to, to get our group to buy um, two, almost two full casks and the third cask, just a little bit of it. So the rest of it just went on um, line. These, these were stuff distilled in the early 90s. I think the price at that time was like $80 or something like that, $75, $80. And, you know, and so that those were the first three casks of Lan Cantata that came in. Only a few of us tasted it. So we were trying to get them to buy it never having tasted it. So I understand the challenge. Once they tasted it, once people started drinking this stuff, they got it, right? And they understood, oh, not only is this great Armagnac, but it's really appeals to the bourbon palate, right? That was the difference. Is like the other Armagnacs, which I love, are more traditional, are, are not quite as dark and oaky. This stuff was really a bourbon drinker's Armagnac. And at some point, enough people tried it that it did develop this sort of cold status. And it probably helped that they have these very distinctive bottles with the orange wax on top. <laughs> Steve, you're a trendsetter, man, because I know. I because I can tell you right now, the first Armagnac that I had was a Lincoln Tata and was a Lou Pablo. And I was just like, of course, this is this is really good stuff. And 
now now I know the origin story of, of why I liked it so much. It's <laughs> right. funny. It was purposefully brought in for bourbon for people. And it's funny now because you'll look back and you'll I'll see people online say, well, this company just, you know, makes this stuff to appeal to bourbon drinkers. And I feel like this company didn't know anything about bourbon <laughs> drinkers. Like they didn't know they the, I don't think they even thought that they would sell anything in the US ever. That was not on their radar. We called them, right? We the bourbon guys called them and said, we want you to bring this stuff in. And then Eventually, like we did a second set of two casks and then eventually got out there enough that they got a U.S. distributor. So now they're here. Now that very old Luz Pabu is gone. Like that is something that's gone. Like there may be a, you know, they may still have some stuff from Luz Pabu. They bottle a lot of other stuff, but it's interesting. Like, you know, again, they're an independent bottler and we were focusing on this one producer, but now all their stuff is hot, which is sort of not totally rational because, you know, it's just different. It's from different distilleries, right? Different It's the same thing. People were going for the Pappy 15, yep. 20, 23, and they're yeah. like, oh, we'll just get Weller 12. Now we'll get Weller 107. Yeah, it just it, it follows the same same pattern. At least those are the same, roughly the same bourbon. Like this stuff, like they're just totally different, bottling totally different things. Now, they do have a commonality where their stuff does tend to, I think a lot of it tends to be in that profile. So that makes some sense, but it did, definitely did take off, which is, I would never guess that Armagnac would take off in the US. And apparently, you know, now that stuff is, very in demand. Um, and it's still, they do a great job. I mean, that, that company, Lung Cantata is fantastic. And the, those, the two guys who run it and it's a side thing for them, you know, it's not their full-time job. It's just a thing they do for, you know, it's a, a side gig, a fun thing for them. Um, but they have a really good palate and they, and they find really good stuff. So it's great that they've been successful. It's fun that people are drinking brandy, but it does have a little bit of the feeling of the early bourbon world, right? <laughs> like, okay, what direction is this going to, is this going to go in? It's funny. Uh, the first time I ever had yak was when Reed sent us those samples and it said yak on the bottle, like a sample bottle. And I was like, you know, spelled Y A K. And I was like, what is this? It's so damn good. And I was like, man, this must be Yakazima Japanese whiskey. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I didn't. And then we text or email Reed. And I was like, man, I really love that. What year was that Yakazima? And he's like, no, it's Armin Yaki, dumbass. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's how naive I was, but it, it was fantastic. I love that stuff. And, you know, and shout out to, you know, I think K&L was where, where I got mine and everything like that. And I think K&L is probably one of the better premier retailers for brandy in the U.S. and stuff like that right now. So if you're ever in the California area, make sure you go check it out because they do have a, a pretty good selection, at least last time I was out there. Absolutely. K&L in California, Astor Wines in New York are really the two central brandy retailers in the U.S. There, there are a few others that have some good stuff, but they, they're the ones that consistently bring in a good selection of, of brandy and KNL to me really are, are the ones who really helped kick it off by committing to it before they knew if they would sell it, sell any of it. The guys, the spirits buyers there, David Driscoll, who's not there anymore. And David Othman Gerard, who is, who is still there and, and heads up that program just did a fantastic job bringing that stuff in. For sure. Well, Steve, I want to say thank you so much for for coming on the show today. It was awesome to a you know air some grievances. Like feel you got feel like you got a little something off your chest there. But you know we're still going to pay attention to everything you're putting out. On, you know, trolling TTB. I'm glad you you feel a, a passion for it still and and be able to still call people out because without you and Wade, uh, a lot of us would just kind of let it just kind of like fly underneath the radar. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing what you do. Like I said, I've got no, I've got no beef with with podcasters, especially those who do uh, quality productions like you guys and and the other folks you have on, Fred, of course, and the other folks who who find a passion in bourbon. Well, I appreciate it, and and thank you so much for introducing the world to to brandy, and, and yeah, hopefully, you know, not ruining that one for everybody too. So. <laughs> 
Got 10 years. Tom's chicken. 10 years. Get in now. Tom's Join Serious Brandy now. You got 10 years. Yep. There you go. So make sure you join Serious Brandy on Facebook. You can just go ahead and search for it, and I'm sure you can find it and get a or find an invite to there. Make sure you also follow Steve at Scoo's Recent Eats. That's S-K-U-S Recent Eats on Twitter, and you can see how he's, uh, uh, you know, putting out good stuff there and, and making sure that people are following along with what he's doing. So make sure you follow him. Also follow Bourbon Pursuit on all the socials. And I'm sure you're listening to this, but subscribe wherever you get your podcast. With that, cheers, everybody. And we'll see you all next week.